0: you have a Bible with you, open to Luke chapter 1. That's page 856 in the Black Pew Bibles. 856, Luke chapter 1. This Advent, we're working our way through the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. And we're seeing the coming of Christ through the eyes of the first witnesses. The first people to kind of behold this new thing that God uh, was doing. And these accounts reveal something to us of the surprising and unique... Uh, nature and beauty of the gospel. And so this morning we're in Luke chapter 1. We're in verses 46 to 53, which is called Mary's Song. You might see that heading in your Bible, or your Bible might say the Magnificat. That comes from the medieval Latin translation. Um, The Bible was not written in Latin. It was written in Koine Greek, at least the New Testament was, but uh, they spoke Latin. It was the lingua franca throughout much of the first centuries and so uh magnificat anima dit mea dominum i'm sure i butchered that uh and you guys can tell me later how i did but uh that's what it comes from magnificat my soul magnifies the lord the magnificat the magnification of the lord it's a hymn or a poem or a song something along those lines that mary utters Mary's one of the central figures in these early chapters, but up to this point, we've only seen her speak two short sentences, so it's hard to get a sense before this of how she feels, what she thinks. She's only said two things. First, the angel Gabriel comes and tells her she's going to conceive and bear a son who will have an everlasting kingdom, and she responds with a clarifying question. Chapter 1, verse 34, how will this be? Since I am a virgin, it's a good question. Then Gabriel explains that she will become pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit, apart from the usual birds and bees. If you don't understand what I mean by that, go ask your parents. Um, And Mary says, no matter how old they are, and Mary says, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary says yes to God. Even though it's unclear at this point how this is going to go in any way that is good for her, she says yes to God. The late pastor Tim Keller calls this uncomprehending obedience. She does what God asks her, even though she doesn't comprehend. She doesn't understand. And let's not forget this is a costly obedience. This is a costly yes. Saying yes to God meant bearing a child for her at a time when childbirth could be deadly. There were no hospitals. There were no emergency C-sections. There was no modern technology or epidurals or anything like that. Uh, To become pregnant in the first century had the very real possibility that this could be the last nine months of your life. Saying yes to God meant bearing the stigma and social cost for her of being pregnant out of wedlock. Nazareth, uh, people estimate, was anywhere between 500 and 2,000 people. Right, so it was a little bit bigger, maybe, than say Fox Chapel High School. All right, um, and so Mary would have gotten the reputation in there in Nazareth. She's the teen mom. Wasn't there a reality TV show about that a while back? Um, she becomes. The, she's going to be the teen mom. We learn in Matthew's gospel that Joseph, who was her betrothed, uh, is a just man. He's unwilling to put her to shame. And so he gives her the best possible outcome. He's going to divorce her quietly. So best possible outcome for Mary, saying yes to God means I'm teen mom, full of shame, uh, possibly going to die in the next nine months. And I'm going to be divorced quietly by the man who... Who is my security right now? Who is my future? It's all going to unravel. Um, Worst possible scenario if Joseph hadn't been a just man who divorced her quietly, he could have publicly accused her and had her stoned to death. So Gabriel comes and says, Greetings, favored one. I'd be like, What do you mean? This sounds terrible. You are destroying my entire life. I'm getting ahead of myself in the story to put it this way, but Mary is taking up her cross. Saying yes to God means taking up your cross. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but uncomprehending obedience is sometimes the best I can muster. Sometimes it's almost more than the best I can muster. Um, sometimes God asks us to say yes and follow him, and he knows that we're not going to feel it for a good long while. Sometimes your heart's just not in it. Sometimes you get out of bed and you're, you're dragging yourself through the motions, saying, I'm just going to show up today. Sometimes that's the best you can do. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask and invite you to reflect on this. Um, is there some area in your life where you feel that the Lord is challenging you to say yes to him? Maybe you are quietly putting him off because you just, there's some kind of grief or bitterness or resentment in the corner of your heart and you don't want to go there. Um, Or maybe there's some sort of calling um, or or that he's put on your life and you don't really want the consequences of that and so you don't want to you're just like I'm. Just going to keep putting this off and going about my business. Doo, doo, doo. I'm saying I'm not saying no, God. I'm just not saying yes. Do you need to say yes to God? Um, we leave Mary at the end of verse 38, uncomprehending but obedient. She says yes to God, even though the way is hard. And here's the wild thing about this passage. Okay, end of verse 38 doesn't get it but says yes seven verses later she sounds like she just won the lottery i mean doesn't she right uh verse 46 my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior it's not she's like i'm so excited to be teen mom i might die in the next year woohoo what happened um, this, he- this is Hebrew parallelism, by the way. Uh, the, first t- the first line uh, is distinct from the second line, but they intermesh. They complement each other. And so m- the first line, my suke my soul, my, which means my whole being, not like the ghost that's operating the machine. suke in the New Testament Greek means my whole self, body, mind, spirit, all of it, magnifies the Lord. It makes his presence big. So teen mom facing public shame, likely a divorce, possibly a stoning, says that through all of this, the Lord is bigger in my life. He is more central in my consciousness. He is more valuable to me than he ever was before. Mary has a big God. The theologian A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about a person is what comes to mind when she or he thinks about God. What comes to your mind? Do you have a small God that you have to manage everything by yourself? Or do you have a big God that even though everything may seem like wreckage around you, somehow this God is over it? You don't know. Your obedience is uncomprehending, but you can say yes to him. Mary has a big God. And here's the complimentary idea. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. That verb rejoice doesn't just mean like, yay. It means to be exceedingly glad or sometimes to jump for joy. Now, I've learned this over the, next, over the last few years, and um, I've noticed that my children bounce on christmas morning any other anyone else ever noticed that that small children they just kind of come bouncing down i think they levitate down the stairs um, and then and they open all of their presents in like a couple of milliseconds and it's over mary is bouncing she's exceedingly glad that's the emotion going on here she rejoices with her whole being in god um, this is an extreme, this is an extreme emotion. It's charged. Um, and notice she doesn't say God the Savior. She's not stating theological truths. She says God my Savior. This is a statement of her own personal experience. Her faith is not merely a intellectual assent. It's personal relationship. God saved me. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. My future is secure. Uh, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Here's my question. How does a teenager from Nazareth get this kind of joy and gratitude? It's like a trope in the media right now that the most self-absorbed kind of person on earth is a teenager, right? Right? Um, sorry, no offense, teenagers. I don't think that that's the truth, but um, but it's it's sort of is that's the reputation, right? The teen girl is only about her and her fiefdom. This is a teenage girl, and she has this incredible joy and gratitude. So what happened in those seven verses, from the end of verse thirty eight to the beginning of verse forty six, that transformed uncomprehending obedience? Into spontaneous overflowing joy. Spontaneous overflowing joy just doesn't—it doesn't just come out of a person, just on its own. You can't will this kind of thing. I can pretend to be excited, sorta, but I get worse at it every year. Anybody else feel that way? <laughs> um, how can you and I get this kind of joy? Sometimes, maybe, you've, maybe you're in this place like you've said yes to God, but it doesn't feel good. And you're like, I don't, I don't know. Um, I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I lean not on my own understanding. It doesn't feel good. Um, what does God use to turn the rocky path for Mary into the way of joy? Let's look back. Jump back with me to verse 36. I think this is really cool. Um, remember, Gabriel says to Mary, she's like, You're, this is going to happen to you. Behold, um, two, subtext, if you don't believe me, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So there's a promise there, there's kind of a reassurance, but also an implicit command. Hey, go check out what's going on with Elizabeth. So, what does Mary do? Verse 39, she arose and went with haste to the hill country of Judah to visit Elizabeth. She obeys God. She says, let it be to me as you said, I'm your servant. And then she goes to find out what's going on. She seeks to understand. So Mary goes, she arrives, she greets Elizabeth, and verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb.'" That means the baby. "'And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me?' How could she know that if it not? That's a prophetic word. "'For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my my womb leaped for joy.'" and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Can you sense? This is emotionally charged. Think about Mary. Uh, She gets this word, she becomes pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, do teen moms in Fox Chapel High School get uh, a lot of applause from everyone, or a little bit of quiet judgment and stigma? The latter, right? Imagine what it must have been like in Nazareth. After, imagine what it must have been like with all of this foreboding and discouragement. I said yes to God, but it isn't going well for me. And then making the 70 mile trek down to the hill country of Judah while pregnant to visit her relative Elizabeth. And everyone's like, why are you going on this trip, Mary? Well, the angel told me. Oh yeah, Mary, just like, it's, just like the angel's the one, the power of the Holy Spirit made you pregnant, right? And then she gets to Elizabeth's house and there's this outpouring of prophetic wisdom, of encouragement, of spirit-filled joy. Three significant gifts change Mary's perspective here. One, she has godly fellowship she interacts with an older woman who knows God. And that changes everything. I don't know about you, but uh, a lot of times, I just need someone else to pull me out of my funk. I need someone else to be beside me, to remind me that I'm not alone, that God is real, that he is working. C.S. Lewis once said this, that when he was, um, when he was an atheist, he often felt these, had these moods where he felt this tremendous fear that God might be real. And now that he was a believer, he had these tremendous moods sometimes uh, of fear that perhaps it wasn't all real. He found that his own emotions were like a sign curve, coming and going. I once knew a woman in, in my church who struggled with a lot of um, mental illness, and um, it's a different church from this, uh, several churches ago actually, but she said that she, lear- she learned to count on the body of Christ and not to trust her own emotions. Um, we need godly fellowship. Mary had that. And this godly fellowship, she's reminded of who God is and what his promises are. Notice that last verse that Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She's saying all the promises, I trust, Elizabeth's talking about herself here, I've trusted all these promises And I am blessed because I believe that they would be true. She's reminded of God's promises. And in the middle of all of that, three, the Holy Spirit comes. Friends, we can't make it without the Holy Spirit. You cannot do anything apart from the direct influence of God, the presence of Christ powerfully active in you by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And as a result of this, godly fellowship, reminder of the promises, the Holy Spirit, Mary has this expanded vision of the significance of her own life, and her joy just overflows. It multiplies. It's like it comes out of nowhere. Suddenly, she's not concerned for her own comfort, or her own safety, or her own respect. She has this wider view, and she responds to Elizabeth by uttering this hymn. Did you notice that? The Magnificat is not just like a random hymn stuck into the Gospel of Luke. This happens within the context of a conversation. She sings, or speaks, I don't know, the Magnificat to Elizabeth, by my count, it's 116 words long in the original Koine Greek. Of those 116 words, she only has any reference to herself in the first 44. That means after the 37 yard line, there is nothing more about Mary at all. It isn't about her. She rejoices because she's blessed, yes, but she sees that this blessing is more than just me. This is part of a cosmic inversion that God is bringing about. I'm going to ask you all to be a little vulnerable here and be honest with me. Who here at one point or another in your life has laid back over the edge of your bed or your couch and put your top of your head against the floor and looked at the world upside down? Come on, be honest with me, right? You know, you just like lay back. You guys... I'm, I'm staggered by how few people are willing to admit this. I do this all the time. Come on, really? Am I the only person that does this kind of thing? Well, you get the, you can go home and do it, uh, please. Uh, it, the, right? This is inversion. The world is inverted. The ceiling becomes the floor, the floor becomes the ceiling. Everything is upside down. Mary says that with the arrival of this baby, all of the values that the world has come to live by are inverted verse 51 he has shown strength with his arm he has scattered the proud in the thought of their thoughts of their hearts he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty So the coming of Jesus displays God's strength in such a way that the proud are scattered, the mighty are brought down from their thrones, the rich are sent away empty, the haves do not have, but those who fear God receive everlasting mercy. Those of humble estate, which literally means like the poor, sometimes the humiliated, Are exalted and the hungry are filled with good things. If we had more time, we could look at how this song is echoing like the whole Old Testament, right? Uh, It sounds a lot like the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. Remember, Hannah was barren, she couldn't have children, but then God gives her a son, Samuel, and Hannah uh, was. through her husband's injustice and a lot of corruption, uh, one of at least two wives. And the other wife bare, bore lots of children and taunted her all the time. And uh, I believe it was Panina, right? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, anyways, it's not in my manuscript. Uh, but Hannah sees that when she gets a son, she gets this child. This is a sign that God is flipping everything upside down. And she says, she shouts a victory song that's full of this idea of inversion. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. We see this all over the Bible, uh, from Moses uh, and Pharaoh to David and Goliath. God delights in raising up the outcast and the humble and the brokenhearted, the losers, the defective, The downcast, he delights in exalting them. Uh, This is why the nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche hated Christianity. He hated it. Uh, Nietzsche believed that strength and the will to power and the survival of the fittest were the only real values, the the only real goods in the universe, and that weakness and mercy should be despised in all forms. And so he wrote this he said, Christianity has taken the part of all the weak, the low, the botched. And he said it went against, quote, all the self preservative instincts of sound life. Nietzsche said it was slave morality. Basically, all of the losers got together and tried to pretend that the rules were other than, they, than what they were. They tried to say, it's good to be weak. It's good to be down. And Nietzsche said, no, it's a hard world, red in tooth and claw. And if you can't make it, then you need to be dispensed with. The ironic thing is that Nietzsche understood the inversion of the gospel quite well. He's right, in a sense. He's also really, really wrong. Let me just make that really clear, okay? If you all write me an email and say, or write Alex an email and say, did the, did the, did the assistant pastor really say that Nietzsche was right in his sermon? No, I didn't say that. But here's the thing. In Christ, humility does triumph over pride. Self-denial replaces self-promotion. Um, the last word is not competence; it's mercy. It's grace. Christianity is about God's grace in Jesus Christ, not our works, not our deserving. God could have chosen to save the world in any number of ways. He could have, he could have come in some sort of like. Great grand moment, and just wrecked all the wicked and saved the righteous. But who would have been left? But he chose the way of paradox. In Paul's words, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see that? This is the display ultimately of God's strength. That he takes the place of the downtrodden, the poor, the weak, the low, the botched. Jenna had this remarkable point this week. She was talking about this with me. Um, He takes, God chooses to take a place that in Jewish culture um, was regarded as unclean, as unholy. Right? A woman's womb in that day was not regarded as a holy uh, place. It was regarded as like unclean, can't enter into the holiest of holies. But the Holy of Holies takes residence precisely in that place. He takes residence right in the center of our human nature. And by that, presence dignifies it and raises it up. Why would God do this for a bunch of weaklings? Why? Um, I can't give any kind of like really clear, profound theological answer to this other than that like, for some reason, he loves us. He just does. Just loves us. So a couple quick words of application. Um, We all have days where we feel proud and self-assured, spiritually satisfied, and financially or otherwise secure. There are days when we go into church and we feel like, yeah, I deserve to be here. That's not how we come to God. None of us. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. Not for the healthy, but for the sick. Um, And sometimes I think that God brings the mighty down from their thrones for their own sake. That perhaps that is an act of mercy. Uh, But if you're brought low uh, this morning, and if you're the grieving or the brokenhearted, the weak the low, the botched. If that word has a particular resonance for you, Um, I pray that we would all just learn the logic of the gospel, Um, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. Amen.